Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. You can just leave it open, thank you. Oh look, the billiard table's free. So, I don't know about you, but the bullpen's gotten a little crowded for my taste. Tell me about it. And you know what? Half of them honestly think the killer's some mad genius. Well, I don't know about a genius, but... Aw, uh, not you too, Piscioti. I just think, if it is one killer, there are too many coincidences for him not to have been picking his victims for their similarities. You break. Uh, sorry? Break the rack. Oh, right. So you think alliteration just really turns this guy on? It's not just that. The victim's family makeup, socioeconomic status, religion. Right. He's a sucker for girls on welfare, too. Could he be choosing some of the girls because he sees something in them? You know, that he connects to on a personal level. If he grew up in a single-parent family with financial hardships himself. Except we're not talking about a troubled man who's trying to make new friends. We're talking about a sexual predator. He chooses his victims because they're 11 years old, and that's what the sicko is sexually attracted to. Nice shot. Don't you think it could be both, though? That he seeks them out for their age and the other things that they have in common? No, I don't, because he isn't keeping them alive long enough to form this magical connection you're talking about. If it's exclusively about sex, then how come none of the victims looked anything alike? Why doesn't he have a physical type? Because pedophiles can't afford to be choosy. Ah, man, there's something else going on here. I just can't put my finger on it. Ah, man. (laughs) You've never played pool a day in your life, have you? That obvious? Come on, let's get another drink and you can tell me what's swirling around in that head of yours. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the Alphabet Murders. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your other host, Carter Roy. Now, back to the puzzling case of the Alphabet Murders. While things may have seemed a little bleak suspect-wise in our previous episode, the following years and decades brought new forensic technology and new suspects. Starting with one just a couple of weeks after we last left off. Ten-year-old Carmen Cologne, 11-year-old Wanda Walkowicz, and 11-year-old Michelle Mienza were all strangled and raped. Their bodies were each dumped on the shoulders of roads as if tossed from a car. All three were abducted off the street, likely in a car, during early afternoons while running errands for their mothers. None of the abductions were witnessed. Both Wanda and Michelle were redressed after they were killed. Carmen was found half-dressed. Autopsies revealed that Wanda and Michelle had both been fed within an hour and a half of their deaths. 
Wanda had eaten a custard-like substance. Michelle had been fed a cheeseburger, which was further supported by the fact that a witness at a local fast food drive-in saw a man return to a girl in his car resembling Michelle and hand her a bag of food before driving off. White or light-colored cat hair was discovered on each victim, although it's unclear whether this may have been from the girl's own cats. We know at least from Wanda's grocery list that she had a pet cat. Lieutenant Fantagrossi was pretty convinced that the killer was able to lure the girls into his car with the promise of a sweet treat to eat and a cute kitty to play with, though authorities disagreed on whether or not the victims were familiar with their killer before they were abducted. None of the witnesses who saw Carmen running on the freeway the day she was killed got a good look at the man in the car that she was running from. And no one came forward as having witnessed the man who committed Wanda's murder. Only in Michelle's case was anyone able to describe the face of a suspect. But even after three witnesses were able to produce and publish detailed police sketches of the man, it led to few interviews and no confirmed suspects. And all of that evidence was purely circumstantial. Police had very little physical evidence. In the 1970s, forensic science was just on the brink of rapid evolution and new techniques. But during the years the murders took place, much of the science, most notably in DNA analysis, was unfortunately unavailable to our detectives. Only by the time of Michelle's murder were police able to collect a partial palm and wrist print from her crime scene. With an experimental technique involving iodine vapor, police transferred an impression of oily residue left from the killer's hand onto a piece of metal and photographed the print to compare the suspects. In today's world, the most important piece of evidence from rape cases is the perpetrator's semen. Indeed, this evidence was initially collected from each crime scene in the expectation that it could prove useful in the future. But in the following few years, the serological evidence, meaning the evidence from bodily fluids from Carmen and Michelle, was used up entirely in the rudimentary analysis and inexact comparisons. All that remained was serological evidence from Wanda's crime scene. Predictably, to those of us living in 2017, it would come to be the most important evidence in the case. Which leads us to Dennis Termini, a 25-year-old Rochester firefighter. Five weeks after Michelle's death, he was not having a good day. His attempted abduction of a teenage girl at gunpoint that morning hadn't gone well. She refused to stop screaming, and he was forced to flee the scene in search of another candidate. Dakota Crow, oh, oh, give us those nice bright colors. Give us the greens of summers. Makes you think all the world's a sunny day, oh yeah. I got a Nikon camera. I love to take a photograph. So mama, don't take. <gasps> Hi, do I know? Oh my God. There, that garage. Okay. Freeze! NYPD! Did you see which way you went? No. No. I can't hear him either. There, do those look like fresh footprints to you? Hell yeah, they do. He's in the car in that driveway! He's armed, Morph. Requesting backup on Fieldwood Drive off of Waring. Armed suspect has locked himself inside a car. 
Dennis Termini shot himself in the temple, taking his own life before he could be questioned. It was discovered he was the garage rapist who had been evading Rochester police since the previous January. Could he have been the alphabet killer as well? Our story will continue in a moment after the break. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, our story continues. Seven of the garage rapist's nine known victims were between 18 and 25, an older demographic than Carmen, Wanda, or Michelle. The youngest garage victim was 16, and the oldest was in her 40s. That's a pretty wide age range. Doesn't quite denote a certain type of victim. Perhaps his only requirement was that the women were available targets while he was on the prowl. The neighborhood where he typically prowled just so happened to be the neighborhood where both Carmen and Wanda went to school and where Wanda was last seen alive. Termini also lived half a mile from Michelle's school and her last known location. Termini's car was beige-colored, which matches the description given by motorists of the car pursuing Carmen on the freeway the day she was killed. In Michelle's case, it's also the only thing any of the witnesses who saw the same suspect managed to remember about his car. In Termini's car, police found a map folded in a way that focused on the city of Webster, where Michelle's body was dumped. He also kept his firefighting garb in his car. It was of particular interest to police that Termini was a firefighter. It might explain how he may have lured the girls to go with him as he could be seen as a figure of authority, and thus an exception to the rule of stranger danger. This theory resonated particularly strongly with Wanda's mother, Joyce Walkowicz, who up until that point had difficulty believing her street-smart daughter would accept a ride from someone she didn't know. Termini remained at the top of the list of possible suspects for decades. But it wasn't until 2007, with the advent of new DNA technology, that Termini's possible involvement could be put to the test. It's a complicated and legally fraught procedure to exhume or disinter a body, and it's rare that police disinter a suspect in an unsolved crime, especially one more than three decades old. But a judge approved a search warrant allowing the disinterment of Termini's body. And so, the aging detectives found themselves digging up the corpse of Termini. Once exhumed, forensic scientists extracted materials from Termini's remains for DNA testing against the remaining serological evidence from Wanda's crime scene. Weeks later, detectives received word from the lab. 
PCR testing shows comparison of reference sample and DNA profile of suspect Termini, Dennis as a confirmed no match. Denigrassi's turning in his grave. 33 years after eliminating himself, Termini was finally eliminated as a suspect. Strangely enough, Termini wasn't the only suspect who killed himself. Let's rewind for a moment. From 2007 back to 1991. Remember Carmen's uncle Miguel Colon? Now this was the man who fled to Puerto Rico two days after Carmen's murder and frustrated police by hiding in the jungle. Right. And he also passed a lie detector test. Well, in February of 1991, almost 20 years after Carmen's death, officers responded to reports of gunshots at the residence of Miguel and Guisermina Colon, Carmen's mother. Hands up! Drop the weapon! Shoot me! I need you to drop the weapon! Shoot me! Sir, if you drop the gun, no one needs to get hurt! Shoot me! Please! Just put the... No! Don't! When his demands were not met, Miguel raised the gun to his own head and shot himself. Before Officer Fitch arrived on scene, Miguel had shot his wife, Guisermina, in the neck and in the arm, and wounded her brother, Juan, in the chest. Apparently, their injuries were not life-threatening, and both survived. The incident was labeled a domestic dispute, but Miguel's motive for shooting his wife and brother-in-law, seemingly out of the blue, was murky at best. Jealousy and financial woes were brought up. Guilt and shame were not. Detectives had long suspected the Cologne family of harboring secrets about Miguel. Like how he may have killed his niece in cold blood. But no one brought forward any such suspicions after his death. The Cologne family was seemingly just as baffled by Miguel's sudden violent suicide as everyone else. So he lives a non-violent life for 44 years, never hurting a fly, and then one day, for no apparent reason, shoots two family members and kills himself. Seems a little far-fetched. Psychologists and criminal profilers would likely agree with you, as research has found that domestic violence is seldom an isolated incident. Several detectives have been convinced that Miguel was Carmen's killer ever since he fled the country following her murder. Now seems as good a time as any to examine some reasons the murders weren't necessarily the work of a single killer. One reason is how different Carmen's case was from the other victims' cases. Well, unlike Wanda and Michelle, Carmen's autopsy did not find she had eaten within a couple hours of her death, so the killer didn't feed her. The fact that anyone was able to witness Carmen running away from her abductor on the highway means that for at least a moment, he lost control of her. Remember the woman who saw Michelle in a car at the drive-in waiting for the suspect to return? Or the would-be Good Samaritan who witnessed Michelle with the same suspect when he saw a car on the shoulder of the highway and stopped to see if he had a flat. Neither of those witnesses saw evidence of Michelle resisting in any way. She didn't get out of the car at the drive-in. She didn't signal to either witness that she needed help. It creates a picture of a killer with full psychological control over his victim at least, presumably before he assaulted her. On the other hand, it could be that witnesses saw Michelle when she didn't yet realize there was anything to be afraid of. Carmen was undoubtedly in a different position if she was half nude when she was seen running from her attacker's car. 
but most notably were the differences in the way her killer murdered her and disposed of her body. While all three girls were strangled with a similar item, Wanda and Michelle were strangled from behind, but Carmen's killer was facing her as he strangled her. The majority of strangulations occur from behind. It's an easier position from which to inflict fatal pressure and carries the advantage of being less vulnerable to the flailing limbs of the victim fighting back. According to criminal psychologists, face-to-face -face strangulation is associated more commonly with anger at the victim. Carmen was found far more battered than the other two girls. Fingernail prints scarred much of her body. Her skull had been fractured. She was not paid the relative respect of being redressed before she was disposed of. But that may have been because she tried to run away already naked from the waist down. And in the killer's haste to recapture her, her pants may have simply just been forgotten. Regardless, her murder was undeniably far more brutal than the other two and that suggested a much more emotional killer. Maybe he was enraged by how close she came to getting away. Or perhaps it was due to the intensity of emotions criminal psychologists have associated with the pedophiles, who have a close personal relationship to their victim. Police may have been divided on whether the slayings were committed by one or multiple killers, but the copious similarities between Carmen, Wanda, and Michelle caught the attention of the nation, and deservedly so. The idea of a pedophilic killer with a perverse alphabetic obsession who may have been leaving some kind of cryptic message for police picked up thematically where the Zodiac Killer left off. It sets wheels turning in the minds of many. Individual theories and speculations regarding the twisted alphabet killer can still be seen online today in various forums and blogs. Theorists noted that C, M, and W happen to be the third, thirteenth, and twenty-third letters of the alphabet. One postulate to the double initial theory proposed that C, W, and M may have been an abbreviation for come with me. All right, wait, hold on. What? Why? I believe it was an assumption of what the killer may have said to his victims before abducting them. Oh, okay, but why come with me? Who decided that was the reigning abbreviation? Why not, for example, the creepy but fitting children with men, or the blunt and succinct children were murdered, the idiomatic, come what may? Honestly, all equally plausible combinations. Well, at a certain point, some people stopped believing the details of the case could be coincidental and started thinking, what are the odds? So, what are the odds? I'm glad you asked, Carter, because we just so happen to have done a little number crunching of our own. We started, of course, with the likelihood of double initials. Mm, one in 26, right? Well, no, since that would assume that every letter in the alphabet is equally as likely to be the first initial of a name. Ah, right, because rarely does anyone's name start with X, U, or Y, for example. Some initials are in fact substantially more popular than others. You may have noticed this if you've ever seen one of those kiosks of the touristy keychains with initials on them. Oh, good luck finding your kitschy initial keychain, Xavier. <laughs> Luckily for initial monogrammers, and for us, the Social Security Administration keeps running tabs on baby name statistics, including the top thousand most popular names from every year since 1879. And they've added up the percent distribution of every letter? Well, technically that wouldn't be the most accurate representation considering how drastically naming trends have changed since 1879, when the name Bertha enjoyed a spot in the top ten. 
We use stats from 1961 and 1962 since they encompass our three victims' dates of birth. Well, how about last names? For that, we use the 2000 U.S. Census table of all valid last names that appear 100 or more times, which covers 90% of total surnames. It's starting to get a little mathy. I know. Sorry. Bear with me for a second. Suffice it to say that the odds of a girl born in the U.S. in 1961 or 1962 having double initials is around 5.6% overall. But it is important to note that the statistic is for double initials occurring at random chance and doesn't factor in the greater likelihood of parents choosing alliterative initials. And one needn't look any further than the Kardashians to see the popularity of matching monikers. <laughs> So, if the odds of each girl having double initials are at least 5.6%, the chance of all three victims having double initials is 0.017%. In other words, super, super unlikely. Don't forget that their bodies were found in towns with the same initial as their names. Again, at first, this might seem like a slimmer chance without exact context. There are 35 townships in Monroe and Wayne counties where all the bodies were found, but only 13 different possible first letters for towns. Three, or 8.5% of these, start with M, and five, or 14.3% of them, began with W. What about C? It's often publicized that Carmen was found in Chiliriga area, 15 minutes southwest of Rochester. I'm not counting it as a coincidence, but upon adding the likelihood that Michelle and Wanda would both be found in towns with their initials, our odds come to 0.00035. In other words, it's highly probable that the killer was targeting girls with double initials and that it was all part of his grand plan. And we can't discount the victim's personal similarities. Catholic families, single mothers receiving government assistance. My major problem with the hype surrounding the odds comes down to these similarities. First of all, Catholicism was and still is the most common religion in New York. According to a 1990 survey, 32% of all people in Monroe County were found to be Catholic. The numbers aren't available for Monroe County, specifically in the 1970s, but Catholicism in the U.S. as well as in New York saw little measurable change from 1970 to 1990. So let's go with 32%. Not too bad of odds if you're gambling. Around 15% of children were raised by single parents in Rochester from 1971 to 1973. Considering the financial limitations of a single parent household, it should come as no surprise that 99% of those families were below poverty level. So the likelihood of three victims with all those similarities? First, let me just say that in an interview with Richard Piscioti, he said that in 1973, he ran a statistical analysis on the odds that the case similarities were a coincidence. It was off the scale. You'd have a better chance statistically of winning the lottery in three states on the same day. The day you also got struck by lightning. Other things you're much less likely to do than the odds of the double initial murders being completely coincidental, have identical triplets and become an astronaut. Are the odds of all these coincidences crazy? Yes. Does that mean they aren't coincidental? No. If you're a serial killer junkie, 
or you were alive in the 1970s, chances are you're already familiar with our infamous third suspect, Kenneth Bianchi, also known as the Hillside Strangler. In Los Angeles, a killer the police are calling the Hillside Strangler has murdered 10 young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. Between October 1977 and February 1978, the Hillside Strangler, or as it became known, Hillside Stranglers, terrorized the LA area. The duo consisted of Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono, two former Rochester natives. Following extensive media attention, Bianchi relocated to Washington, where he killed two more women, a pair of roommates. Without his methodical cousin and partner in crime, Buono, Bianchi botched the crime scene and left enough evidence for police to apprehend him the following day. Mr. Bianchi, for the charge of first-degree murder of Karen Mandic, how do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. For the charge of first-degree murder of Diane Wilder, how do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Bianchi attempted to plead not guilty to all counts of murder by reason of insanity, citing multiple personality disorder and blaming an alter ego named Steve Walker for his crimes. However, a court psychologist found that Bianchi was faking, and he agreed to plead guilty and testify against Buono in exchange for leniency in his sentence. Here's where our case comes into play. Buono's lawyers became interested in the alphabet murders when Bianchi suddenly changed his story on the witness stand. If Buono's defense team could prove that Bianchi acted alone in additional murders, it could also stand to help their client Buono's case. Because of this, Crow, one of the original detectives on the alphabet murders case, came back into the fold. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. <sighs> Patrick, sweetheart, have you been up all night? At first I thought it was just a political thing, that they were coming to us, just a defense attorney exhausting every angle. I mean, I knew the M.O. was similar, but I had no idea. This is about the three girls? All of Bianchi's victims were sexually assaulted strangled with a smooth ligature, and then dumped off of roadsides in the open with no attempt to conceal them. He was living here during the time of the murders. He didn't move to L.A. until 75. And while he was working here, he was an ice cream vendor. Pretty easy to get to know young girls in that line of work. Guess what else he did for work while he was here? Did you get any sleep at all? He worked as an ambulance driver and a security guard. Both of those come with a uniform, makes him look official. And if that wasn't enough, the guy went to Monroe Community College and he dropped out after the first semester. But he took classes in psychology and police science. He even applied for a job at the sheriff's office, but he was rejected. Wow. He could have been my colleague, Helen. He was right under our noses. Where are you going? Gotta get to the office. Patrick, it's four in the morning. Love ya, hon. Another very important thing here was that in analyzing the evidence from Wanda's crime scene, forensic scientists determined that the perpetrator had a blood characteristic present in only 20% of males. And it just so happened that Bianchi possessed that blood characteristic. 
That was enough probable cause for a judge in L.A. to enforce that a wrist print from Bianchi be sent to a forensics expert to be compared with the wrist print from Michelle Mayenza's murder. Reflective of just how long the Bianchi Buono trial lasted, the print took four months to analyze before it was determined, you guessed it, not to be a match. Although it's worth mentioning that wrist prints are not as clear-cut as fingerprints and that wrist prints do change over time as an individual ages and skin loses its elasticity. Bianchi was 25 at the time of Michelle's murder and 35 by the time the print was taken. Rochester detectives were quick to point out that not only was this particular test inconclusive, it didn't exonerate Bianchi from the other two murders. Even when serology tests proved Bianchi was not responsible for Wanda's murder, police had no intention of completely crossing him off their suspect list. Bianchi ended up confessing to five of the Hillside Strangler murders and was sentenced, along with Buono, to life in prison without parole. Hey, Reeland, you have a moment? What is it? There's a handwritten letter addressed to you. Uh, not really time for... From Kenneth Bianchi. There is no physical trace evidence, witnesses, or admissions by me concerning those three murders. I did not commit those three murders. I respectfully request a final determination on this. Drop me as a suspect or charge me. This indefinite status must end. <laughs> not often you get a letter from a convicted murderer. I'm flattered. The detectives found it understandably bizarre to receive a letter from Bianchi in 1993 at random, considering that no one had pursued him as an active suspect in a decade. Dear Mr. Bianchi, we appreciate your letter. Unfortunately, we do not make judgments like this in cases in which there is no statute of limitations. Should I close with best wishes, or is that too much? This had detectives, and us, head-scratching. Bianchi was already serving a life sentence for 12 murders. Even if he were hypothetically charged with one or two of the alphabet murders, what's a couple more? Well, he does have his reputation to think about. But everyone knows he's a serial killer. At that point, why not just embrace it? To be fair... In prison, child molesters occupy the lowest rung on the social totem pole and are often targeted, taunted, beaten, and sometimes even killed by fellow inmates. Sure, but Bianchi was already found to have molested and murdered a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. Whatever the case, out of frustration, desperation... Or lack of stimulation, Bianchi continues to spend his jail time penning letters trying to convince the media the police, or anyone who will listen, that he did not commit the alphabet murders. Speaking of letters from convicted felons, the Rochester police also received an unrelated correspondence from a man in a maximum security prison alleging he had information on the case. Actually, several times over the span of more than a decade, they received letters from the same convict, always maintaining the same allegation that he was fairly certain a relative of his committed all three of the murders. Police took saliva swabs from the relative and analyzed them, but the results were negative. Before we introduce our final serious suspect, a couple more honorable mentions for most disappointing leads. During interviews, police learned of another man who had acted suspiciously around the time of the 1973 murders. After Wanda's death, 
the suspect was said to have acted overly emotional, despite not being a close friend of the family. Reports also indicated that the man who died in 1974, the year after the last murder, had told friends about his pedophilic desires. There was a similar allegation from a woman who said a friend of her brother's had once told her he was responsible for the alphabet murders. Detectives did find the suspect's name in a funeral log for one of the victims and determined that he had once lived in the same apartment building as her. He also died in 1974. Both of these suspects were cleared when their biological children provided saliva swabs for testing. Let's fast forward to 2011 and meet Joseph Nasso. At the time, a 77-year-old, Rochester-born, former photographer with a history of petty crime in Northern California and Nevada. Nasso had a penchant for shoplifting and was caught on multiple occasions trying to steal women's underwear. It turned out that his relatively harmless but undeniably odd crime would lead to his undoing. Have a nice day. Amanda, did you see who it was? I think it was that old guy. Really? Sir, excuse me, sir. The sticky-fingered senior citizen was arrested for grand theft for shoplifting from a Raley's in South Lake Tahoe, California. Grand theft is charged when the items total $950 or more. After his arrest, he was assigned a parole officer who, upon a routine check on Nassau in his Reno, Nevada residence, discovered piles of photographs. Not uncommon for a photographer. Of unconscious women in various states of undress many of whom were posed as if to appear dead. Oh. There's more. There was a diary. The following are excerpts taken verbatim. Outside the front door, I overpowered her and ravaged her. I couldn't help myself. Picked up a gorgeous chick at a bus stop, headed for the cemetery, and started to kiss and molest her. It was hard work girl in North Buffalo Woods. She was real pretty. Had to knock her out first. North Buffalo Woods likely refers to Buffalo, New York, which is about an hour's drive from Rochester. The Rochester 1958 entry corresponds directly to an article from that year in the Democrat and Chronicle. Nassau, then 24 years old, was charged with second-degree assault and attempted rape after he offered a local woman a ride home from a bus stop. She said she had met him previously at a dance. Aside from the obvious reasons, this was significant. It established Nassau as being in the business of offering women rides home and sexually assaulting them in his car. At least one of them was a woman he knew beforehand. Original detectives Piscotti and Crow had a conversation about Nassau's diary and came to the conclusion that some of the victims he referred to could have been young girls. But we haven't even gotten to the murder part yet. A couple of the women posing as dead in Nassau's photographs were indeed dead. The listed locations of his crimes in the diary spanned California, Nevada, Colorado, and Florida. It didn't take long for police to connect the dots and match several of the locations to specific unsolved murders. A year after Nassau's probation officer found the diary, 
Nassau was charged with the murders of four female prostitutes. Roxanne Rogash, Pamela Parsons, Tracy Tafoya, and wait for it, Carmen Cologne. A Carmen Cologne completely unrelated to our 10-year-old Rochester Carmen Cologne. Even we double initial significant skeptics were a little floored by the odds. Although we'll add a quick footnote that Cologne is a fairly common Puerto Rican surname and Carmen is a fairly common Spanish first name. While he was only convicted of those four victims at his trial, Nassau was later linked to two more victims, neither of whom had double initials. It's important to note that Nassau has been deemed the alphabet killer of California, but he's not been linked with any irrefutable evidence to the killings of Carmen, Wanda, or Michelle. Those victims were much younger than his victims. It goes without saying, though, that our Monroe County detectives had quite a few reasons to investigate Nassau for Rochester's own alphabet murders. However, it turned out to be a false lead. Well, this time we'll spare you the exact details of how it went down, but Joseph Nassau became the fourth serious suspect that was cleared by DNA testing. Police have yet to identify the four other entries in Nassau's diary list. Plus, the guy could have committed dozens more murders. I don't think so. While the alphabet murders remain unsolved, the case is unique in that it's never truly become cold. In the past 45 years, new leads have continued to be generated and investigated with surprising regularity. It remains the most heavily investigated case in Rochester's history. Detectives interviewed over 800 suspects. They considered every witness line phone call. They followed up on every tip, no matter how insignificant it may have seemed. Every few years, police still meet up to discuss the investigation. There's a generational quality to it, an inherited sense of duty to the victims and their families. It's difficult to feel any sort of closure when deaths go unsolved. We hope that the Cologne, Walkowicz, and Mayenza families can take at least some comfort in knowing that police didn't, and still don't, leave a single stone unturned. For our money, we still think Miguel was Carmen's killer, and that Wanda and Michelle's murders were committed by a different individual. While we do believe that it's likely Wanda and Michelle were killed by the same person, we think the coincidences really were just that, coincidental. Well, the bizarre similarities between our young victims turned into a sensationalized serial killer story that may have rewritten facts and overshadowed the reality of these girls as individuals. But the double initials, even if they had nothing to do with their murders, unified Carmen, Wanda, and Michelle. It ensured that none of them were forgotten, that none of their deaths were any less important, and for 45 years, that the search for their justice continued. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. Or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter, at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll investigate the case of Sir Harry Oaks. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, 
with production assistance by Maggie Admire and written by Tori Zakor. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors include, by alphabetical order, Harris Markson, Nicholas Massu, Manu Narayan, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>